Welcome to Beth Takoon and this series of teachings called Spiritual Seasons. In these teachings, we are looking into the weekly Torah portions in the light of God's yearly curriculum for spiritual development connected to the calendar. This week, we are in Parsha Tzav, Leviticus chapters 6 to 8. Tzav means command. The name of the portion comes from the second verse of the portion, which begins, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The portion is a complement to Parsha Vayikra, which is the last portion. In Vayikra, the various types of sacrifices, or korbanot, are laid out. So I'm going to usually say korbanot here. In Sav, each of these types is addressed a second time. We go through all of them again, and we get more information. In Vayikra, each type of korban is introduced with when or if a person brings such and such an offering, right? So that's the last portion. But in Tzav, this portion, each type is introduced with this is the law of or the Torah of this or that offering. And then we're given additional information, more information than we had in Vayikra. So another distinction of Tzav, as we go through all these korbanot again, is that there is an emphasis on what the priests receive from the korbanot, the priests share. So after the korbanot commandments, you know, after we go through them again, then we come to chapter 8, and there we see the consecration of Aaron and his sons. It actually happens, and it's done according to the instructions that are given earlier in the Torah. So those instructions were given in Parsha Tetzave. So it's a momentous scene there as the priesthood on earth begins. Moses ceremonially washes Aaron and his sons with water and dresses them in the holy garments. He then slays and presents a bull as a sin offering. And then he does a ram for a whole burnt offering. And then he does, you know, slays a second ram as a special ordination offering. And he instructs Aaron and his sons to stay in the tabernacle for seven days. So pretty busy day for Moses there and Aaron. And it's a huge thing. That's how we get the beginning of a a whole new class of human being, we could say. Those who have God's permission to perform the holy functions of connecting together in, in these special ways, mankind and God at God's home on earth. So let's think now about how Tzav fits into the calendar. So we're in an important transition now as Adar has given away to Nisan, right? The month of Adar has changed to the month of Nisan. It's a time of death and rebirth. We're seeing rebirth all around us in nature right now, but any kind of rebirth means that the last situation has to end and you have to leave it behind, right? The trees are dormant right now, or, or almost not, but for them to enter into another cycle of growth means that they have to leave that dormant state behind and start building again, right? So in a way, that's a kind of death to leave the previous situation, you know, and kind of wake up and engage with the new situation. So as we make this transition now from the end of one cycle to the beginning of another, 
we're moving from a place of the bride. This is what we've been talking about all along in the dark side of the cycle. The bride who acts with a higher degree of independence and gives back to God from a heart of love, right? He's shining the light, but in the dark side, we're the bride shining it back, reflecting. Well, now we're moving away from that mode to a mode that's more focused on dependence on him and receiving the dependence and receiving of a child. So there is a part of the cycle where we have to receive the light, which we later reflect back. And we're, we're moving into that part. But there's not a sharp line between the two phases. Um, the two are enmeshed. They're connected together. So why might we have a portion now named sav, meaning command? The word sav used here is actually a bit unusual, but we only see that the fact that it's unusual when we compare it to similar verses throughout the Torah. We often see in the Torah this formula that is usually, and Adonai spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, so the phrase usually is speak to the children of Israel, daber, but there are two variations. So one is say to the children of Israel, and so that's the verb amar, um, instead of speak. But just six times in the Torah, there's a stronger wording, which is our wording here, command the children of Israel. And that's the word zav, which is the name of the Torah portion. And this is actually the first time that we see zav, command the children of Israel, in this formula. And the word sticks out at us for another reason, it's because it is the name of the Torah portion. So, our attention is really being drawn to this idea of command. We're being commanded right now. So, once again, those three words are that, that are swapped out in the formula. They are say, speak, and command. The sages say that the softest of the three is say to the children of Israel, and speak is a bit stronger. And, of course, command is obviously the strongest of those three. So, think about a parent commanding a child to do something. The idea of command puts an emphasis on the fact that God is very high and the children of Israel are very low. And it carries with it something of the idea that this commandment isn't really for you to ponder and and digest and cogitate about. It's not necessarily for you to understand. Just do it, right? Do it with some speed even. And this is honoring to God when we do what he commands, simply because he commands it. It's not hard for us to see how this portion, you know, this title, which is really what the whole portion is about, if it becomes the title. It's not hard to see how that fits into the calendar. So as we lean now to the mode of a child that obeys, a child that absorbs, a new situation, a new teaching, a new light. The wording of the Torah shifts in this place, you know, this formula shifts to command, which is an appropriate word for a child. The child doesn't have the capacity to understand the newness of the world around him or her yet. And there are situations in life where we must recognize that we have little capacity to understand. But we have to submit anyway. Maybe your spiritual leadership, maybe your elders or someone, makes a a decision that seems baffling to you. 
But you set those questions aside and simply obey. Now, we do that as long as the leadership is not asking us to go against the Torah and God's teaching in some way. And there's something beautiful in the sheep submitting in that situation. There's even a portion of the year, though, a season of the year, where God has designed an emphasis on this kind of obedience and this kind of you know, this mode of asking fewer questions and simply trusting and moving when he says move. And you don't have to understand. And that time is now. So we're in that season. Let me encourage you to listen to his voice now and move with alacrity, right? And speed when he says move. Leave the cogitating to, you know, for later. And you know, I should add here, though, that we always wait long enough to be sure we are genuinely hearing from the Lord. And that may involve seeking counsel from others. So we don't want to move too fast. But once we know it's from the Lord, don't hesitate. There will be a time for greater understanding later. And understand, too, that he may be bringing something to you now that you're really not going to have the ability to understand now. But if you know it's from the Lord, don't hesitate. Do it. Expect it. So we spend years learning to obey as a child, but there does come a time of adolescence when God puts it into us to start deeply asking why, right? And we're being commanded, you know, why are we being commanded to do this or that? That's, I think more than anything else, what I remember from my adolescence is that kind of feeling like, why haven't I ever asked why before? I want to ask why now, right? Well, that's God's design. God puts that in a teenager. So the overall design is not meant to hide anything, right? There's a point where he wants us to ask that question, but all in its good time, right? There's a certain, you know, we're not always ready to ask that question. We haven't seen enough yet to ask that question sometimes. And so this idea of Zav is very appropriate for the sacrificial system which is the subject of the portions of. It's an elusive topic that feels especially alien to us in modern times. And God's, God uses the word command, right? You know, we're not really going to understand very well. And it's almost like God is saying, I know you're going to have a lot of questions about the Corbin out, but I just want you to do it. So in some ways, though we can try to understand what we can about the Corbin note, we don't let that hinder our obedience, right? Lack of understanding. But we should try to understand. But we accept that these commandments are coming from a deep place within God's will, such that he just gives them with little means of understanding them. It's God is the parent saying, I know you can't understand this right now. Just do it. It is my will for you. So the sacrificial system is somewhat impenetrable for us, and there's a kind of peace that comes with recognizing the depth of these commandments and their sort of impenetrable quality. We're just, uh, you know. (laughs) If we are given the opportunity tomorrow to bring Corbinot at a rebuilt temple, we don't need to understand deeply what we are doing. We do because he commands, period. And may that temple be rebuilt soon and in our days. 
So we know that the sacrificial system is a shadow of what Yeshua did for us on the cross. Do we expect to ever really understand how God looks at that act? How God is looking at Yeshua on the cross? Do we really expect to understand that? Well, that's what the Corbinot are all about. I don't think we really expect to fully understand how God is seeing his son on the cross there. And so, in this, by the same token, we don't expect that kind of understanding with the Corbinot. And the sages say that there's a kind of extra measure of power attached to these commandments given the word, you know, given with the word sav, command the children of Israel. Obedience in these cases actually comes from a place of a great deal of faith in God and his goodness, the faith of a child in the parent, right? The child trusts in the parent. In fact, the rabbis say that doing these commandments in particular have the ability to affect all generations. Now, I'm not really sure if they mean past generations or just present and future, but in truth, everything we do ripples out into time, both past and future. And the rabbis say that the Corbinot, you know, doing the Corbinot makes a particularly strong ripple in time. So think about that. If you were able to bring a Corban today, that act sends an especially strong ripple through time, and the whole timeline is affected of world history. It affects the whole world right now, and it continues out into the future. And even more sort of mind-blowingly, that act today would even reach back to the past and affect the past. Think about the fact that what you do now could affect the children of Israel as they are walking in the wilderness or the generation of King David or Abraham and Sarah. Since God is outside of time, at one and the same time, God can look down at the timeline and, and see it all stretch out in front of him, all of human history. And he can see over here, he can see, you know, Abraham making an offering to him. And he can also see over here you bringing an offering in 2024 at a restored temple. And he allows the two to affect each other. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to think about that, that the Corbinet have even a particularly strong effect, right? And just, just the way that God can, is outside of time. And he can see, you know, everything that's happening back then He's got one eye on the future of us reading about that, of us being encouraged by that, of us maybe even praying, Lord, give them a little bit of peace in their wilderness journey today. Why not? Why not? And it's kind of amazing to think about that. So on the other hand, we just do because uh, we are commanded, you know, that, that's on one side. But on the other hand, we actually have to have a little bit of understanding <laughs> so, um, so that we can even know how to do what we're doing. So am I supposed to bring an olah for whatever situation, or am I supposed to bring a shalamim, a peace offering? How do I do it? You know, what are, you know, what are the, what's the ritual? How do I prepare to do it? How, how do I make myself clean in the days leading up to it? Uh, there are some practicalities that must be understood on a certain level. So, 
Let's look at this idea of uncomplicated obedience from another angle too, because this kind of obedience is not only a trait of the child, but also a quality of the mature. So remember that the, the end and the beginning of the calendar are enwedged. I like that word enwedged, but they're meshed together. With maturity comes understanding, but the truly mature will also keep constantly before them how little they truly do understand, right? That's, that's the beginning of wisdom is knowing, oh, I, I, actually, I don't understand very much. <laughs> so they will have the ability to continuously know themselves as both the mature adult and the young child simultaneously. So further, they understand that having these two states of consciousness, you know, on the one hand, knowing ourselves as having grown into adulthood, while knowing that we still have so much further to go. We're still a child in many ways, even as we're an adult. So keeping these two always in mind creates a kind of internal wholeness, a shalom and a peace inside of us because the two states of being complement each other. Right? You kind of get arrogant if you think you're mature. But if you're always thinking you're a child, uh, well, that's a little frustrating, right? <laughs> so we need to always keep in our consciousness, the idea that we do any of the commandments, firstly, because they are commanded, period. I do the laws of kashrut, of kosher, you know, what to eat, first of all, because he commands them. At the same time, in the complexity of our thought life, you know, we can also be trying to gain understanding. You know, and the rabbis talk about why certain foods might be clean and unclean. And I find that discussion very helpful to me for knowing how to live a holy life in this world, but it's not the root of why I'm obeying the laws of clean and unclean foods, right? I do it because he commanded. Understanding, though, um, also helps us to be passionate. Our, our passion for it partly grows out of our understanding. Oh, I get it now. Oh, I want to do it, right? <laughs> um, and so understanding is also important. Um, but we stay humble with our understanding, remind ourselves that we can never understand more than a drop in the ocean, and that there will always be mystery. And so, along with the kind of calming sense of surrender to God, God the Father, God our Father, right, us the child, um, that admission of, of not knowing, you know, brings a kind of calm to us, it also brings out the glow of mystery surrounding the commandments. And this sense of mystery is valuable because mystery is connected to wonder. And wonder is connected to joy. And joy is actually connected to deeper understanding, right? If we pick up that word of God and we don't have joy, somehow our understanding is inhibited. But joy unlocks that in the word. It starts with this mystery. Ah, oh, what a mystery. Well, I don't understand. I don't know. So the sense of mystery is actually a kind of starting point for the process of understanding and, and firmly being engaged with the commandments and wanting to do them. There's, there's some power there to obey. But we must always have within our being and within our consciousness that childlike sense of wonder and mystery, even as we retain a maturity and a dignity. So the moon speaks to us of this idea. 
that we're constantly going back and forth in our, in our maturity of knowing and our newness of beginning again. The moon is always growing into fullness and fading into nothing again, only to be reborn again, you know, to begin again, a growth journey. Let the moon be an encouragement to us that we are always to carry with us the mature clarity of the full moon and the newness and sense of wonder of that little sliver of the moon beginning its growth journey once again. Look up into the sky and think, I'm an adult and I'm a child at the same time, right? One of my points here is to show that though Tzav speaks to this phase of rebirth and starting again as a child who received commands, the portion also reaches back to the end of the last cycle. So Tzav is connected to both Passover and to Purim both the beginning and the end of the calendar, and and this is how. Um, It's usually read just before Passover, as we're doing this year, but in a leap year, it's actually read just before Purim. And so we can see this duality in the very idea of Tzav, that simple obedience is a trait that the young must abide by, right? They don't have another choice because they can't understand, but it's something that the old must never let go of this simple obedience, knowing that you don't understand fully. Well, we'll get back to Zav shortly, but I'd like to focus now on this idea that I'm calling the salvation pattern, giving some further explanation of what it is and how we build it and explore with it. So we've been kind of using this rubric, this this way of understanding for half a year now, starting in the eighth month, and um, I'm not sure that we've, I've explained too much about how I've arrived at it, how, you know, where it comes from. So after this explanation of, of the salvation pattern, we'll apply the salvation pattern to the Corbinot. And we'll, we'll put it to use today in an example. So it's a good time to do this kind of foundation work because the cycle has now flipped and we begin again. The salvation pattern drawn out of the Word of God and His creation is the root of this spiritual season study that we're doing. Now, this might um, be a little bit in the weeds for some. It might be a little hard to understand. It might be a good idea to go through this part, especially a second time. You'll probably get more out of it a second time. What is the salvation pattern? Well, one way to understand it is that it's a pattern of growth that God has designed into creation. It's about development. It's a pattern of growth. So everything develops according to the pattern called salvation, right? We think of just development. This develops, that develops, it has its fruit, it drops its fruit, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to say that is all salvation. This means that everything in creation is on a journey that begins with unity in God, moves through a phase of falling away, and comes back together with God in a deeper unity, a deeper echad. And so those are the big movements of the pattern, a unity with God, a separation, and coming back together. Well, one of the first places we can look to start teasing out some finer details of the process is our, is our own salvation journeys. We are walking out with the Lord, right? We know that more than we know anything else. 
So the details for each person's story will be different, obviously, but the, the root progression is largely the same. So ideally, in, in an ideal you know, development cycle, um, it starts with a carefree childhood that's a kind of simple faith and that kind of attachment with God. And that turns to a kind of a rough period of adolescence when we really struggle with temptations and turmoil of all kinds. And we begin to sense deeply, eventually, that our path is not leading to life, Um, particularly as we kind of kick against the authority and we experiment with that or this. There's a moment of turning, you know, that eventually has to come in that. Teenager will get pretty frustrated in that kind of a life pretty quickly, and that's, it's meant to be that way. So there's a moment of turning more wholeheartedly back to the Lord and walking away from the world, what we might call a moment of conversion. And maybe also baptism is happening at that time. Certainly did in the tradition I grew up in. As salvation continues, we move on to progressively learn more of God's ways. We're learning them more more deeply. We're learning more of them. And over time, we see ourselves and our inward motivations better, right? By the light of this study, by the light of this new kind of knowing of God's ways, because the Spirit is helping, helping to open that up for us and cast, shine a light inside of us. And so by that light of seeing inside, we know how to repent more deeply as the problems become clearer, right? We go through that conversion. The Holy Spirit comes along to help us we start to look in there and we say, uh-oh, <laughs> how did all of this happen? And we repent more deeply. And then on the basis of that deeper repentance, God pours out his grace, but he wants us to see it first, right? And he does a deeper work in us, and he does a deeper work in our, in our hearts. And he writes the Torah on our hearts. And eventually that leads to a life that is increasingly focused on others, And it also leads to a greater intimacy with God over time. And so that's the pattern. So let me repeat that quickly. We start with kind of an innocent faith. We go through a phase of strong temptations and upheaval and falling. And that leads to a kind of awakening. How did I get down here in this pit? And there's a moment of turning from the world, a conversion, And then there's a process of learning God's ways more and more deeply. And this leads to, uh, you know, progressively to seeing ourselves better, which leads to deeper repentance. God graciously does a deeper work in our soul, a deeper work of cleansing that often comes by way, you know, of, of our married lives, actually. Often God is doing, if we're looking at salvation over the course of a lifetime, He's often going to be doing a deeper work when we get married and are trying to figure out how to become one with our spouse, and then especially when we become a parent. So that's kind of designed into the system of humanity. And that, and you know, in this process, eventually, we've, we come to focus our lives more on others. We learn the joy of that. We learn the life of it and the truth of it, our design for it. And in that process, we grow more intimate in our relationships with others and with God as well. So that's the general gist of the salvation pattern.
I think we can all identify with that journey in some ways or other. So the approach we're taking to God's yearly calendar is that same salvation story. Um, You know, we're taking that salvation story that we know from ourselves and we apply that to the calendar and we say that that whole journey is happening every year. And the annual Moedim are milestones, right? Those holidays, they're milestones on that yearly journey, that yearly journey that is like that whole lifelong journey. So other than, you know, looking at our whole lives, the calendar, you know, beside the cal- besides, besides looking at our lives in that way, which we know so intimately, the calendar is probably the clearest picture of the pattern of salvation. So salvation is not just something we experience over the course of a lifetime. We experience the whole of it every year in miniature. And that also happens every month somehow or other. And that happens every day. And I've heard rabbis talk about how every day resembles a year, for example. Um, It's kind of fun to think about that, actually. So the calendar is particularly useful for digging into the salvation pattern because it's it's so richly connected to some other pictures of salvation. Um, On the one hand, we have these details about Passover and Shavuot and Sukkot. So we have a lot of verses. We have a lot of information about the Moedim and and the progression of the Moedim in the year. But on the other hand, since the Modim are actually connected to the calendar, we can see that whole story playing out in the physical seasons around us. And added to that, we have the whole agricultural calendar. So we have kind of a lot of these pictures coming together, and they're all synced up by the calendar. We know where the first one of each starts, where the second one of each starts right? We have a first month, we have a second month, we have a third month, we have the first moed, and the, you know, they all fit together. And so the three are deeply connected. And once again, the, the moedim, the physical seasons, and the agricultural calendar. But, um, and so it's a very rich group of connections there as we're bringing all of that to bear on and what is this pattern of salvation we're living through each year. Well, if we just layer two of them, let's take the Moedim, so Passover, um, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Shavuot, you know, the, the, seri- the string of them. If we take those and we just think about them with the physical seasons, we already start to sense that there's an underlying pattern there, that there are themes that the Moedim and the changing seasons have in common. So we start to notice things like freedom from Egypt, which is what we're celebrating at Passover, coincides with the rebirth of spring and everything that's happening around us in the spring. So we might further notice that when the calendar grows dark in the winter, God also didn't give us any annual Moedim there. There's no light of the Moedim. You know, in those months from the eighth month around to the twelfth month, he didn't give us the light of the Moedim there. We don't have any. Um, It's also dark in the year there when the darkness is ruling the night time. 
But we can also notice that mankind stepped up and added something in the darkness there and added two Moedim of our own, Hanukkah and Purim. So we start to make these other connections. Oh, is that a time for, for people to step up and do something? And um, if we add in the, the agricultural calendar then, with the other two, we notice that there are two great harvest times in Israel. Um, there's one in the spring, naked seed, grain. There's one on the other side, is the flesh-covered seed, right? As we're entering into the more physical side, you know, the, the dark side. There's this other kind of seed on the other side, and it happens that there are two great festival seasons on those two sides, <clears throat> that being the, the Passover season and the fall Moedim. And it just so happens that in the physical calendar, we're hitting the two equinoxes when day and, and night are both 12 hours each um, on those two sides of the calendar as well. And so you can see how these three are really helping to illuminate each other. That's kind of how the whole, you know, has, we're starting to get to the root of what the pattern of salvation is. And we start to bring in other ones. You know, we notice that Abraham, he's early. He's first. You know, he's the first of the progression. That is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Passover is early. And... Um, it's the first of the annual Moedim. So then we ask ourselves, well, what does Abraham have to do with Passover? How are these two sim similar? Well, they're going on journeys out of dark places. They are, you know, they're, they're faith journeys that are beginning there. Anyway, there's lots of ways that we can start to think about it. And another, you know, kind of thing that we might find there is that God is very strong as the father in both of these cases, he's very strong with Abraham. He's very, I'm God the father, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bring you out of there, and I'm going to bless you. And um, so now we start to associate God the father, God in the role as a, of the strong father with that point at the beginning with Abraham, with spring, with um, Passover. And so we have a lot of ideas starting to, to overlap. You know, the barley harvest is there too. All of these are picturing in their own realms the first stage of growth. And so we start to develop a certain feeling for what that first stage is. And on it goes. We get a lot more light when we align the progression of human development with these others. So birth, childhood, right? We see God the Father, we see this birth out of Egypt, and we think, oh, birth, childhood. And so we think, oh, maybe that's, let's keep going with that, right? We've got birth over here, we have childhood here, we have adolescence here, and adulthood, and that one really opens up so much more, so many more connections, because again, we know that one so well. We have been a child, we have become an adult, and it's just so intimately connected to our experience of life. We add in the Torah cycle, which is what we're doing in Spiritual Seasons, this you know, series of teachings. We add in the layout of the tabernacle as we move from space to space. That's a kind of progression. It's telling the same story. When we understand that each of them is telling the same story, you know, they begin to illuminate each other more and more, and the underlying pattern starts to emerge. And we develop theories. Maybe the root of this middle step is 
this or that. And over time, with God's leading and with much more thought, we refine and we add more and we tweak and we tweak again. And it's a work in progress, always. It always will be. But it's nothing less than the study of Yeshua, salvation. And somehow in there, as our understanding grows, we are being drawn closer to Yeshua. We're knowing him better as we know the process of salvation better. So eventually we're able to apply the pattern to less obvious progressions to see if we find a resonance there. And so that's what I want to do today with the korbanot, the sacrifices. And they're presented in a certain order in Leviticus. And that order is a certain progression. And so we'll look at that today. But let me finish this little sort of summary of the salvation pattern by speaking a bit more about the idea that everything in the universe is telling the same story, the story of salvation. So why would I say that? Why would I say this is telling the story of salvation? That is, it's everywhere. (laughs) Why would I say that? Well, it's because everything in creation was made through Yeshua, who is the word by which creation is made. And Yeshua means salvation. So we can almost imagine it that when God speaks out the creation, the word he is speaking is Yeshua. So if God does the work of creation through Yeshua, by means of Yeshua, through the vessel that is Yeshua, then all of creation bears the mark of salvation. It all has an imprint of the story of the one through whom it was made. We just need to become sensitive to how everything around us and in the word is speaking that story. And this includes the korbanot, the sacrificial system. So we'll turn there now. But, you know, we said earlier that the korbanot are introduced by the word sav, and that partly means you don't have to understand. Um, just do it. But now I'm going to try to dig a little deep. I'm going to try to understand a little bit. And so it's not that we um, can't try to understand It's just that our obedience is not dependent on our understanding. And, you know, God actually delights in us when we we try to find what he's hidden in creation. And it's fun for us, too. And so I hope you'll experience the fun with me (laughs) as we go through this. Um, I'm going to do a salvation pattern reading of the Corbinote. So the description of the sacrificial system in Vayikra... And that's where the korbanot are first introduced. It starts with the whole burnt offering at the beginning and ends with the guilt offering. Um, in the middle, we have the grain offering. Um, and then we have the peace offering and the sin offering. So let me do that again. It's the whole burnt offering, one. The grain offering, two. The peace offering, the shalomim, is right in the middle. It's three. We have the sin offering, and finally the guilt offering is the fifth one. And so you can see all these in the outline posted beneath the video. I'll put a link there for an outline. Now, this week's portion of Zav, it's almost the same order, but the peace offering moves from the middle to the end after the sin and guilt offerings. So I believe this is because Vayikra, which the the last week's Torah portion, is addressing the first half of salvation. 
the first half of the pattern in Tzav is like, why do we have to go through all of these again? Why are they named again? It's addressing the second half. And so the order is affected there in the second half. Peace comes at the end in the second half, you know, that deep peace. It comes at the end of the cycle. And so it moves from the middle to the end. But um, today I'm going to apply the first order, the one that we see in Vayikra. And um, so we, we'll be looking at just the first half of the salvation pattern. So one thing that jumps out at me when I see the progression in Vayikra is that the second offering mentioned seems different from the other ones. It's the grain offering. And so it's not an animal sacrifice. So when we see that, if we're sensitive to God's pattern of salvation, we will feel the echo of the calendar there. Right? Why is this grain offering, which seems so different, why is it second? You know, why not separate it? Make it put it in a different section even. The calendar begins with an emphasis on the lamb at Passover. So much later in the calendar, right, the beginning is with the lamb. Much later in the calendar, we'll have a focus on two goats at Yom Kippur, and we'll have a focus later on 70 bulls at Sukkot. And there's a whole progression there. Where are we going from lamb to goat to bull? There's meaning there. We won't talk about that now. But um, there's something that comes between the lamb of Passover and the goats that we come to eventually there's, the, there's actually a focus on something that's not an animal. It's the grain. Um, we have the whole counting of the Omer there. So the Omer count begins the evening after the Seder, right? You have your Seder on um, Wednesday night this year. Thursday night, you, that's, that's day one of the Omer, and you're starting your count. So Omer is, in fact, a measure of grain, the barley that is brought at first fruits. And so first fruits is day one of the counting of the Omer. It's the day after the Seder. So that whole week that begins at the Seder is the week of unleavened bread. And matzah, unleavened bread, is another way to focus on grain, right? It's made of grain. So we count the Omer during the barley harvest. The harvest is happening during this period after the Passover lamb, and that um, it takes us all the way, the Omer does, to Shavuot, where what is offered on the altar? Two loaves of bread made from wheat flour. Um, Again, a focus on grain. So do you see that um, there is a focus, you know, on grain in the calendar. It's very pronounced. It's not hard to see there. So right away, we're seeing this connection between the second korbanot, which almost feels out of place, the grain offering, and the omer period in the calendar. And so this leads us, we see, oh, two and two seem to line up. Grain offering, omer period. Um, And so we think, all right, let's back up a minute. Let's compare one and one, right? The first step of the moed is Passover, you know, of the moedim. And the first of the korbanot is the whole burnt offering, or the olah. And I'll just call it olah, because that's a lot easier and quicker to say. And this teaching is already going to be long enough for me to say whole burnt offering. So <laughs> let's think a bit about the qualities of the first step and see, you know, first step in general. 
when we look at first steps, what do we see in general? Are there any characteristics that seem to apply to both of these, um, the Passover and the Ola? Um, well, the first step in any salvation pattern progression contains the others. It contains the others. It's the seed step. It's the flash of lightning at the beginning. It's the inspiration, the big picture. And don't we immediately sense that there's something about the Ola in particular that feels like it's the basis of the others. It kind of contains the others. So for one thing, it's mentioned first. Second, it is um, to burn all through the night, including both the day and the night. So it contains the fullness in it of a whole daily cycle of day and night. And third, we see that the other, you know, in the text that the, the other Corbinote kind of refer to the Ola as if it's the basis. So, for example, when the sin offering is being described, the sin offering, the chatat, that's the fourth one, it says this, this is the law of the sin offering in the place where the Ola is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. All right, so the place where the slaughtering for the sin offering is done is given in terms of the place where the Olah is slaughtered. The Olah sets the rule. And there is the sense that the essence of the sacrifices, too, is giving yourself to God entirely. That's what these sacrifices are all about, right? And this essence is seen most clearly in the Olah, which is the whole burnt offering. It's entirely given to God except the skin of the animal. And isn't entirely giving ourselves over to God also what Passover is about too? There's a sense that Passover not only contains the other Moedim, it's a complete picture in and of itself of the whole process, but it's also... At Passover, Israel has to entirely give themselves over to God. Why is that? It's because they're starting the story belonging to Pharaoh in Egypt. They belong to another kingdom. And so coming out of Egypt requires fully giving themselves over to a new king and a new kingdom. And they do that. And there's no going back at that point. When Israel follows God out of Egypt the die is already cast. And like once you have the seed, you know what's going to develop. I mean, there's still work to be done, but it's going to happen. And so God might propose to them like a groom later at Mount Sinai and give them a choice to join him in deeper intimacy. But they're standing out there in a desert without much to eat or drink. So they're kind of at his mercy, right? The decision was already made when they decided to leave Egypt, and they don't have a, a ton of free will when he's proposing to them and, and saying, you know, you can be my special people and I will be your God. So let's move forward now. After the Allah comes the grain offering, and we've already connected the, you know, the period of the counting of the Omer to the, um, to the grain offering which ends at Shavuot. So the third one in the list is the peace offering, the shalomim, from the word shalom. So shalom means complete or whole. And after the Omer, right? So we have Passover, we have the Omer. We have 
Shavuot itself. And so Shavuot is known as the holiday of the giving of the Torah. And it is through the Torah that a kind of shalom happens, a marriage, the coming together of groom and bride. So Shavuot has a kind of twinning aspect to it, like like the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and the twin loaves offered on the altar. It's about the joining of right and left, of heaven and earth, of God and his people. It's about being raised to a higher level of union, and that's a kind of early shalom. (coughs) Excuse me there. So after the, the shalomim offering comes the sin offering, the chatat, chatat offering. What happens when we are joined to God through the Torah? You know, we are held to the standard of the Torah, right? So we've come now to the fourth offering, which is the sin offering, chatat. And in the calendar, we've come from Passover through the Omer, through Shavuot. What happens after we come responsible to the Torah, well, we're held to the standard of the Torah. And what is the standard of the Torah? You don't cheat on God. You don't become an adulteress by sinning. If you sin, you die. If you break the Torah, that's sin now. Now you know what sin is. And what we see following Shavuot in the calendar is the period called the three weeks. It's a, it's a mourning period. It's a time of tragedy growing out of Israel's sin, right? The fourth one, chatat, the sin offering. Events that are said to have happened during the three weeks include the golden calf and the breaking of the first set of the tablets. Those go together. Moses comes down on the 17th of Tammuz and he sees uh, the people engaged in the, the golden calf and he breaks the tablets. Well, the breaking of the tablets is like the breaking of the Torah, right? And another sin connected to the three weeks is, is three weeks later on the ninth of Av, the evil report of the ten spies. A, a great sin indeed for the nation of Israel that they mourn today, you know, right? Israel mourns today in the three weeks. So after the sin offering, we've come now to the last one, the fifth one, it's the guilt offering. And in the calendar, we've come to the fall Moedim, Right, we've come through Shavuot. Shavuot, uh, we um, connected to the Shalomim, the peace offering. We've come through the three weeks, which we connected to the sin offering. We come now to the fall, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and the connection here is not that hard to see. Guilt implies that guilt offering implies that a judgment has been rendered, and the verdict is guilty. And what is the focus of the 10 days of awe from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur? It is the judgment, which is said to happen on Rosh Hashanah, but it's delayed until Yom Kippur. And God gives us a chance to get on our knees and do a little repentance before him, uh, before the, the closing of the doors. Now, I know this association with the judgment, like you might say, where are they getting this from? The 10 days, the judgment, it's coming from tradition. Why should I give much weight to that? Well, we give weight to the tradition for one. But the tradition doesn't come from nowhere. It's based on the chronology of Moses' trip up the mountain three times for 40 days each time. You got to give him a, a day or two to come down and go back up again. And 
so if you add those three trips of 40, 40, 40, starting at Shavuot, right, add those days in, you come out at the end right at Yom Kippur, which is when Moses is said to come down the mountain with the news of a gracious judgment from God, forgiveness, and the second set of tablets, which are not broken. They have a reason, you know, for um, saying that those days are about judgment. And so the guilt offering aligns with the period of judgment in the calendar. I mean, honestly, it's just a wonder to see these things. I hadn't thought much about this progression before this week and just emerged from the text rather quickly. And, um, you know, it's, you're just stand in awe of God for his design. So it would take a lot of thought to really dig into what the Corbinot have to add um, to the overall picture of salvation. Um, I mean, I'll leave that thinking for another time. But what I want to do now is to spend some time just dipping into a few of the topics the rabbis like to talk about in Parsha Tzav to see if we can shed a little light on them now. Um, now that we have some idea of how, you know, a framework for understanding how the Corbinote fit together. So um, I hope this is an encouragement to you and is as much fun for you as it is for me. The first one has to do with a change of clothing. You'll hear the rabbis talking about a certain change of clothing that's addressed in this Torah portion. And it's when the priest um, carries the ashes of the Olah, specifically the Olah, the first of the Corbinot, he is to put on a, a, a set of clothing and take those ashes from the uh, altar and dump them to the side of the altar, and then he's to change his clothing, and he's to take those ashes out to a clean place outside of the camp. And so from this verse, it's implied that this should happen in the morning after the Olah has burned all night long and has been reduced to ashes. So... When, when I see clothes, it, you know, clothing, it makes me think of the end of a cycle and the beginning of the next cycle. And we talked about clothing uh, with Purim. Actually, we didn't talk about the costumes of Purim, but the costumes of Purim are a type of clothing. And, um, you know, we, we did talk about the, the many mentions of clothing in the book of Esther, that clothing is mentioned many times there, right? Esther coming near the end of the calendar just a couple of weeks before the end of the calendar. And um, that's when we also read the Parsha of Tetzave. Tetzave also talks about clothing. It's all about the, the priestly garments. And so those are all coming near the end. Here we have this Olah that's um, a new beginning. It's first. And, and like we've been saying, the end and the beginning are connected. They, they, they are enmeshed and they share many qualities. So here we have this talk of changing the clothes at the beginning of the Corbinot. It's not talked about changing clothes in connection to the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth. It's talked about with the Olah. So when a cycle comes to a close, we take something with us into the next cycle. Right? Here's the connection of the clothing from the end to the beginning. We take with us the new clothing that we have fashioned in that cycle. And that clothing is the deeds that we have done, right? Our clothing 
are the deeds. We get to take that with us into the next cycle. So in Revelation 19, right, so we're talking about the end of the Bible. Uh, we're talking about nearly the, the very end of the Bible. It's talking about end time events. It's also talking about the beginning of a new epoch of world history. And there we read, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's not a coincidence that we're seeing this change of clothing happening here with the Ola, which is the first in the series of the Corbinot. And so you see what I'm doing here. We're taking the theme of clothing that we have teased out as being particularly strong at the end of the cycle and the beginning of the next cycle, and we have put that together with a specific detail in the text from the Corbinot progression. So let's do another one. Let's talk about this idea that the Ola is to burn all through the night. One idea that emerges quite strongly from the pattern is that God gives a touchstone of salvation near the beginning of the process. A touchstone is something that you come back to. It's something that reminds you, right? You keep coming back to a touchstone. You keep touching that stone. (laughs) He gives us You know, at the beginning of salvation, something that you see over and over again is he gives us a little mini picture of the whole thing um, as a free gift at the beginning. And it's the seed. He gives us the seed of the whole thing as the free gift. It's often miraculous. And we take that early gift and we cling to it. You know, some people may experience a miraculous deliverance right at that point of conversion. And that's what that happened for my father who was delivered of um, addiction when, when the day that he converted. And so God gave him that little seed. He had a lot more growing to do in life, but um, he could cling to that. He knew that that was real, right? It changed his life. And so that picture became a touchstone for him of what salvation is. And... Um, especially when life gets tougher, especially when the journey gets tougher and darker. And it will, you know, it will, it definitely will, if our salvation is worth anything, get tougher. When the way grows darker, we think back to that early light and we say, I know I did not imagine that my life was like this now. Then it became like this, or God did this miracle, or I knew I felt this, or he said this to me in this way. It was miraculous, and it was God, and it was God's salvation. And if he did it then, he will do it now. The whole Passover story is just, you know, it's this sort of touchstone. And how many times in Scripture does God remind Israel of this story by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, right? Why does that verse happen over and over in Scripture? It's because it's the touchstone that he gave Israel to think back to and remember. So, Here we have this unique detail that the Ola is to burn all night long. This is not said about the other Corbinot. And it's also followed, the very next verse says you to have a continual flame burning on the altar all the time. So why are we having these two pictures of this all night flame on the altar? And it's specifically connected to the Ola, but not the others. Well, from the salvation pattern, we can see why, right? That touchstone of the Ola, it's all about going back to that picture when it gets dark. 
when it gets dark and God says, burn that thing all night long. That's the only one I want, you know, that I'm really worried about you doing that. There's to be a continual flame burning on the altar. You know, you need to make sure you're bringing Ola all the time uh, so that there can be a continual flame burning on the altar. The Ola is the touchstone. We know that the touchstone it happens at the beginning of all of these progressions. It's to burn all through the day and all through the night and when it gets dark. And actually at night is when it becomes more visible from a distance anyway. Um, in the way that a little, even a little light in the darkness jumps out at us, right? Oh, it's so dark. Oh, there's a tiny little light over there. So imagine that you are in Jerusalem and you've had kind of a rough go of life lately and God is kind of squeezing you and you're not quite sure how things will turn out, right? It's gotten kind of dark and there's cause for fear and you're there in the dark on one of the hills surrounding the Temple Mount and in that state, you look down at the temple and burning there in the courtyard is a small flame. It's the flame of the Ola offerings burning through the night. It's saying, don't forget what happened when you first started following God, when God was more tangible for you, when you knew in the depths of your soul that he was guiding you. It's really quite a breathtaking connection coming out of the salvation pattern here. Our God is a God who wants to give us hope when he brings us into the darkness for his good purposes. And he has gone to the trouble of designing these almost mundane seeming, but very impactful ways to speak hope to us. Burn it all night long. Small commandment. Seems pretty mundane. There's a lot more going on there. And it's beautiful and it gives us hope. So let's talk about one more. Um, In written Torah scrolls, There's a small letter mem here in these verses about the Ola, these very verses we're talking about. It's in a word translated flame or fire. And so the verse goes like this. This is the law of the Ola, the Ola which burns on the fire on the altar all night. That word for fire is mokda. And in Torah scrolls, the mem at the beginning is written small. There's some talk about this small mem, but being able to fit the Ola into a bigger picture helps us to kind of filter through all that conversation and kind of hone in on the ones that, the the insights of the rabbis that seem to fit with our increasing understanding. So first of all, the letter mem means water. Water is mayim, right? And it sounds like mem. So mem is thought to carry the idea of water, that letter. The teaching that sticks out at me regarding this little mem comes from Rabbi Raskin, Rabbi Aaron Raskin. He points out that this letter is strongly connected to the story of coming out of Egypt through such words and names as as Moshe, right? You don't get much more important to the story of coming out of Egypt than Moses. Miriam, two M's in her name. Matzah, Marer, Marer are the bitter herbs commanded to eat in that meal before, you know, as they're coming out of Egypt. Uh, The word Egypt itself begins and ends with a mem, Rabbi Ruskin goes on to say. So that word is Mitzrayim. And Egypt's connection to water is even stronger if the word Mitzrayim is understood as a combination of the words Metzar and Yam, which together mean constraints of the sea, the sea hemming you in. 
right? Yam, Metzar Yam, is sea, water connected to Egypt. So it's almost like Egypt is being described as waters that smother, like the chaotic waters at the beginning of creation. They're smothering the land that's buried beneath them. And that's before God gives them boundaries to the seas and he creates dry land on day three of creation. So ancient Egypt was built on the flooding of the Nile, right? This escaping of the boundaries of the Nile by the water. And in coming out of Egypt, what did God have Israel do? Well, he had them display mastery over the waters and walk out of Egypt on dry land. And so we see that phrase, on dry land, repeated in the story of the crossing of the sea. It takes us all the way back to the dry land of day three of creation. So, what is the small mem? It is the small Egypt. It's the small Egypt in this Ola flame. Egypt is made small. Egypt is made small at that beginning story. Egypt is made small in the flame of the Ola. And Egypt will be made small in your life too. You know, just trust. Trust him in the darkness. Uh, the small mem is mastery over Egypt. And again, this, it's, that story is a touchstone story for us. It's the archetype of redemption. The small mem is in, in the flame of the Olah. It's just such a beautiful picture here altogether. When we're, when we're in a dark place, we are to look to the flame of the Olah burning through the night in the court, courtyard of the temple and we are to remember that when everything looked dark there in Egypt, God made Egypt small. He brought Egypt low. He devastated Egypt and crushed Pharaoh's army. Not one of them remained. Right? How much strength do we take from that in that moment of weakness when Amalek is coming and saying, is God really with you? And we think, oh, not one of that army remained. They all just washed up on the shore. <laughs> Well, from this angle, that flame in the darkness is saying, remember, just remember, and he will do it again. And it will be even greater this time. And the fruit will be even more life-giving this time. And so cling to that little beacon in the night. It is real. And what it represents is real. And it will bring you hope. So it's so simple and beautiful. And so are you beginning to see some of the power for understanding and encouragement that comes out of being able to connect together this picture of salvation and that one, this one and that one? If we can connect together the Olah with the Passover and coming out of Egypt, the text starts to open up in new ways. It's mind-boggling, honestly. And it just makes you stand in awe, once again, of the God who designed all of this. Well, we've been focusing here on some details of one particular uh, korban, the Olah. Let's zoom out and uh, as we shift our focus a little bit more squarely to Yeshua. Not just the Olah, but all of the korbanot are picturing Yeshua, the one whose name is salvation. And so what does it mean then that one way to see Yeshua is as a progression of salvation of the Olah first, the grain offering second, the peace offering, and then the sin offering, and the guilt offering. What does that mean about Yeshua? I think what seeing the pattern here says is that Yeshua's sacrifice 
is a covering for us every step of the way on our salvation journey. I mean, do we walk per- perfectly? No. We don't walk perfectly. We don't walk any step perfectly either. <laughs> so praise the Lord that there is one who did, and in each step there, there is a kind of sacrifice that he, he performs, and he covers us in our missteps. We just got to keep trusting and keep moving forward. He's going to cover us. Um, it's not an excuse to sin. It's not an excuse to sin, but it's an assurance that he's going to get us to the goal. So going a bit further, the idea that the, the Corbinot reflect the steps of salvation speaks to what we must do in following Yeshua on this journey. Yes, he's going to cover us, but every step of salvation requires us also dying to self. And we see that in the Corbinot. Every step of growth requires dying to self, especially when it comes to our own pursuit of pleasures that satisfy our nefesh, our animal soul. Right? Every step requires this kind of containment of the animal soul and our desire for pleasure. And we can see that picture specifically of the animal soul in the Corbinot because most of the Corbinot deal with animal sacrifices. So the more that we put those boundaries around the animal soul and the more that we put our nefesh to work for good, um, that the more that we're going to be able to include others in our world, connect to others, serve them, orient our lives toward them. And, you know, each time that we do that, we take another step into the redeemed life the saved life, and we also grow closer to God and to Yeshua. So, that's, you know, that's a lot that I've given you there today. Um, that's plenty, I think, for us to think about today. I want to thank you again for listening very much. I want to thank you. And um, once again, you can download an outline below the video. May God make us people who are always searching for understanding, but who at the same time always retain a sense of wonder at him and his ways and humility, knowing that we don't understand very much. May we be a people who truly live up to the calling to be a living sacrifice. May we be a people who look to Adonai for hope when he brings darkness into our lives And may he make us into the people he wants us to be. Shalom.